Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the HOCL industry. HOCL is the chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infection, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. With dozens of use cases, HOCL is the next great home and commercial commodity. Combining the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water, HOCL will revolutionize skin care, wound care, pet care, food processing, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at hocla.org. My guest today is Dustin Robinson. As a licensed attorney, certified public accountant, and real estate agent, Dustin aims to build great value for his clients, investors, employees, friends, family, neighbors, and those around him. He is passionate about individual freedoms, mental health, and breaking down false social constructs related to highly regulated substances such as cannabis and psychedelics. To fully utilize his skill sets, give back to the world, and to feed his passions, he founded Mr. Cannabis Law, a full-service law firm exclusively focused on the cannabis and psychedelic industries, Mr. Psychedelic Law, a nonprofit focused on responsible legal reform for psychedelics to address the global mental health crisis, and ETER Investments, an investment firm tailored to deploy capital across the psychedelic ecosystem. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dustin, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. So take me back a bit. What first drove you to law school? Yeah, before law school, I did my master's in accounting and got my CPA. I, I worked at Deloitte for a bit. And really, it wasn't any sort of passion necessarily for law. My, my brother, my older brother is an attorney, and I have several mentors that kind of advised me to go to accounting school. And really, their advice for that was based on my passion for business. And they, they felt that having a legal back or, or an accounting background would give me uh, a strong background for business. And then as I was completing accounting school and, and talking more to my mentors, they were like, if you, you also had a law degree, that would make you have an extremely good foundation for, for business. And so really just decided to go there always with my passion being more on the entrepreneurial and business side of things, but figured having those two degrees as backgrounds would be extremely helpful in doing so. The other piece of that is my father is a doctor and 
not a very good businessman. And, and from watching some of the things that happened to him throughout his career with not having a good business background, although he was a, a fantastic doctor, he just wasn't necessarily able to expand his practice and maybe made some bit bad business dealings that he wouldn't have done if he had a better business background. So I've always understood the importance of, of understanding the business side of regardless of you know, what your degree might be. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of doctors out there that don't have that background. So I knew I, I wanted to have a strong understanding for business, uh, regardless of, of which path I took. Oh, and I'd say that's certainly true of lawyers as well. And it's one of the things that led me to get a JD MBA was just wanting to be able to play in both worlds that most business people don't know much about the law and most you know, lawyers don't know much about business. And so if you can live in both worlds, like you seem to be doing, especially with the accounting side, that it can be really fruitful for you. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of attorneys who are, are great at the law, but don't know the first thing about business. So yeah, whether you're a doctor, accountant, lawyer, whatever it might be, running your own business and having that entrepreneurial courage is not easy. So then how did you decide to begin assisting the counterculture industries here with cannabis and then psychedelics? After law school, I worked at Holland and Knight, so did a big law thing for a while. And then I ended up leaving there to help run a multi-state manufacturing company, which we grew quite tremendously. It was my, my role there was definitely finance legal, but more so even operational. And it was an entrepreneurial venture for me. Did that for about five years after I sold my interest in that company was planning to take a year off to figure out my next move and, and had some friends that were looking to do a, a deal. They already had a cannabis license and they were looking to do an M&A deal with another cannabis company. And I wasn't working at the time. I was in the middle of my one year off and I, I told them I'd dive in and, and work with them and help them for free. And we put together the transaction turned out to be way more complex than I expected. I, I knew the M&A piece quite well, but the the cannabis piece was new to me at the time and re recognized that there's really an opportunity uh, for me to create a niche doing complex commercial transactions for the cannabis industry. And after that, I, I got another referral on a real estate cannabis transaction. And before I knew it, I was just doing a lot of deals within the cannabis space. And then Eventually, my cannabis clients started asking about getting into psychedelics, and that was towards the end of 2018, and, and that's really when I, I dove into the psychedelic space. So right now, my law firm is pretty much exclusively focused on both cannabis and psychedelics. Nice. So how is how are psychedelics coming to the fore in your neck of the woods? Yeah, so originally the clients that were asking me about it were mainly doctors and clinics that I, I represent. I represent various cannabis clinics down here, as well as just representing doctors in their personal capacity. And they wanted to get involved in some of the, the research around psychedelics, but they also wanted to launch ketamine psychedelic-assisted therapy clinics. Right now, ketamine is a, is a Schedule three compound. It's FDA-approved. It's one of pretty much the only psychedelic compound that has FDA approval. So there's been a, a wave of, of ketamine clinics opening up throughout the country and, and really throughout the world as well. And so I really just started out in my legal capacity, helping those doctors set up some research programs and set up some clinics. And then at the end of 2019, ended up launching my nonprofit. I, I recognize that while 
the, the medical side was helpful, there really needed to be some sig significant legal reform. The more I read the research on these psychedelic compounds, I recognized that they're having profound impacts on mental and behavioral health indications. So I decided at the end of 2019 to co-founded co my nonprofit with a doctor, originally was a client of mine, then became a close friend. And now she's, we, we work alongside one another, but we co-founded the nonprofit. We drafted multiple bills and laws around the country. We filed a bill in Florida, this last legislative session to, to commercialize psilocybin. It didn't pass, but it got the conversation started and we're actually filing another bill this next legislative session that's going to be a lot different and and then really through my legal and advocacy work started working with a lot of different investors and eventually that kind of organically turned into me launching my venture capital fund which is eater investments which we are focused on deploying capital across the psychedelic biotech ecosystem so tell me, what does responsible legal reform for psychedelics look like to you? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's a good question. And right now, I, I don't have the answer. I think that's what we're setting out to figure out. In the 50s, really, in the 50s and 60s, these compounds, the research was strong. There was a lot of research coming out in the 50s and 60s. And what happened in the 70s is some of the hippie counterculture got their hands on these compounds and perhaps weren't using them too responsibly. And, and, and that's where the government got involved and ended up scheduling these compounds as schedule one. And then all the research pretty much got stifled. So what we don't want to happen, we had this resurgence of research happening over the past decade and really over the past few years has really picked up with a lot of different clinical trials starting to enter FDA clinical trials, Health Canada clinical trials, the EU has clinical trials. There's been this explosion of clinical trials around psychedelics. There's an explosion of institutions like John Hopkins and Imperial College of London coming out with their research. There's an explosion of patent filings. And all this is exciting. But what we don't want to happen is we don't want to roll this out in an irresponsible manner where the dose set and setting are not properly um, accounted for. So I think really the three key components of any sort of responsible legal reform is really to me around dose set and setting. We want to make sure that people are getting the proper amounts of these compounds. They're not expecting to take one gram and they end up taking six grams. We want to make sure they understand the importance of coming at it with the right mindset. And that includes setting the right intention. And we also want to make sure that the setting, that the place and the people around them are conducive for having a positive experience. So there's various different ways you can do that. Oregon has Measure 109, where they've rolled out a commercial framework where these are administered at what they're calling service centers. So it's not like the cannabis industry where you could pick them up, pick up cannabis at a retail store and consume it at home. Under this psychedelic framework in Oregon, you actually have to have it administered at a licensed service center. And Oregon has a two-year rulemaking period where they're going to be working on figuring out exactly what that container looks like to make sure that it is responsible and it, it's done the right way. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm a proponent of, of these having to be done at a, a licensed service center or at a licensed clinic. But I think at least as we start off rolling this out, I think it's important that 
we put up those guardrails as much as we can. And then as we get more comfortable, we raise awareness, we educate the public. I do foresee that in the future, these compounds could potentially be taken um, at home or in a less formal setting under less regulations. But I think coming out the gate, I think it's important that we figure out exactly what that container looks like. Yeah, I think it's interesting because on the one hand, you do have, you talked about the rise of all these ketamine clinics, which I had some friends going to some in Southern California, and they would mostly talk it was a very sort of light ketamine experience. They just get enough to heighten your situation, so to speak. And then I talked to a doctor up in Oregon, and he was full on putting people in K-holes, just get, give people a, a strong dose so that they could fully detach. And which for that, I think it's, it doesn't, the clinical setting doesn't really matter as much because you're not really going to be, uh, you're not really going to be there. But when you're talking about things like mushrooms or LSD or maybe MDMA, I think that clinical setting is probably less desirable. And so you really do need something like you're talking about where you have an infrastructure to educate people properly. So they're using these in a way that's going to be beneficial. But at the same time, do you really want your uh, healthcare practitioner in there with you? Like every time, like you're gonna go on a trip or something. But to say nothing of the fact that ketamine only lasts for like 45 to 60 minutes versus going on an eight hour long mushroom or acid trip or something like that. So there's a lot of moving parts, I would say, in terms of the different dynamics that need to be addressed. Yeah, and one thing that's important for the viewers to understand is there's kind of two legal pathways that are happening simultaneously and, and probably are on course for a collision. But we've talked about my nonprofit work, which is at the city and state level, which is what Oregon has done out in measure with Measure 109. It's still federally illegal. So it looks similar to cannabis from a legal perspective, where Oregon is legalizing a commercial framework from a state perspective, but still illegal from a federal perspective. The other pathway that is is actually picking up tremendous steam, and this is where my investment firm is focused, is on the biotech pharmaceutical side of things. So right now the FDA has designated both psilocybin and MDMA as breakthrough therapies. So in some respects, those compounds are being fast-tracked. And really the reason what breakthrough therapy status means for the FDA is that the preliminary research is showing that these compounds have just as much, if not more, efficacy as the current pharmaceuticals in the industry for these indications with a better safety profile, right? So when you're dealing with drug development through the FDA, there's really two factors, it's efficacy and safety. And, and right now the safety profile of these psychedelic compounds is tremendous. They have, they have a tremendously good safety profile when compared to the other pharmaceuticals in the industry. But what the FDA is doing is they're approving these, or they're, they're at least letting these compounds go through the clinical pathways under what's called REMS. And REMS are risk evaluation mitigation strategies. And essentially that requires, similar to Oregon requiring that it's done at a licensed service center, what the FDA is requiring is that these are administered at a clinic under the supervision of doctors or therapists. But you have these two legal pathways. So obviously from a city state perspective, there's a little bit more wiggle room for the state to be creative in, in what these service centers look like. I challenge people to let their imagination run wild. Um, there's no reason why the service centers in Oregon would need to look like 
a clinic with white walls and people in lab coats or anything like that. But then also on the FDA side, also, I think those clinics could be quite creative. And we're already seeing that with a number of clinics opening up like Field Trip, Nushama. There's a number of ketamine clinics opening up that are really embracing a more creative way to structure these clinics. So I think moving forward, what we're going to see is tens of thousands of what I call psychedelic centers opening up that will be administering these compounds, but will not look like your your stereotypical clinic that you're used to walking into. Yeah, it has been pretty wild to watch, what was it, Prop 64 back in California in 2016, legalizing recreational cannabis to the point that cannabis is pretty passe in California now. And then you have multiple cities there as well as in Colorado, Oregon, that are just, yep, cannabis is old news. Uh, we're going full bore on psychedelics now. And so now you can use uh, mushrooms or a boga or, or whatever it's going to be. And federally, you still have schedule one cannabis, right? And we're talking about, you do have this dichotomy of like cities and states looking to be laboratories of democracy, pushing the counterculture. And then meanwhile, I would say, maybe call it the established industry like pharma, Oh, we're going to get in here. We're going to go through FDA approvals. We're going to start patenting things. And I'm wondering, how do you feel about that approach? Yeah. So number one, you can't patent a natural substance, right? No one's patenting just plain old psilocybin. No one's patenting mescaline. In order to get a patent, it needs to be novel and non-obvious, right? So there's obviously ways around that. And you're seeing companies like Compass Pathway getting creative on how they're filing their patents around psilocybin. But it's important to start with the understanding that, you know, the very natural compound of psilocybin that's growing directly out of the ground, you can't patent that. No one could own that. But people are being creative and there's been an explosion of patents that have been filed. My opinion, obviously I work in both worlds. My nonprofit is focused on city and state legalization. My investment firm is focused on biotech pharmaceutical. In my opinion, it's the research being done on the pharmaceutical side that's going to further drive city and state legal reform. And I will tell you, in the laws that we draft around city and state legalization, we put in the whereas clauses some of the research that's being done and, and the fact that the FDA has designated both MDMA and psilocybin as breakthrough therapy. So the context that we're providing in the state laws is, hey, the federal government, the FDA, the agency responsible for overseeing drug development, is already acknowledging that these compounds are demonstrating extreme efficacy for resolving mental and behavioral health conditions. But the problem is that the FDA pathway takes a long time. Meanwhile, the cities and states have the ability to really go a little bit faster And especially with this mental health crisis, it is like society can't wait for this FDA drug approval. So what we're trying to tell the cities and states, hey, let's take a look at the research going on at an FDA level and let's give it some recognition and potentially pass some laws where we could get people access earlier. Now, realistically, the states don't necessarily have the power or the authority to do that. There's the supremacy clause. So the federal government, federal law is supreme to state law. But we did see in cannabis where that was being challenged, just like you mentioned, we have the the 10th Amendment where the states are, are laboratories of experimentation. And quite frankly, the cannabis experiment worked. And, and I think we're going to start seeing some federal 
changes pretty soon due to that 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 experimentation at a state level. And I think that's what the states are are looking to do as well is push the envelope and push the federal government to do. But in, in my opinion, really it's the research and without patents and without exclusivity, you're not going to see this tremendous amount of capital flowing into the industry. If people are going to invest into the research, they want to know that they're going to get a return on their investment. And one of the ways to do that is, is one through patent filings, but also the FDA, once you get approval, even without a patent, you do have some exclusivity period. So without some sort of exclusivity, you're just not going to see the amount of capital flowing into the industry. And without that capital flowing into the industry, we don't have the research to be done to prove out the efficacy of these compounds. And without that research, I think that this movement pretty much gets stopped in its tracks. It's I, I see it as maybe a, a necessary evil, but that's a, a piece that people need to understand is that patents and, and exclusivity and things of that nature there's reasons they exist. Of, of course, sometimes they're abused and we do see some companies trying to really push the envelope on that. But that's really where the federal agencies and, and the governments and the court systems need to step in and ensure that people are getting patents for things that are novel and non-obvious and not simply blocking indigenous people and, and some of the other marginalized communities from having access to these compounds. Yeah, I think you raise a lot of great points there. And there definitely is, I think, a worry, right, among misinformed people that, yes, you could just, someone could come along and Pfizer or the Sackler family or something could just like patent psilocybin, and then that would be a huge problem. And of course, that's impossible. But at the same time, I think there is also the worry that these companies are so powerful. And you look at Sackler with saying basically being largely responsible for the opioid crisis in this country, just being like, hey, we don't know you shit. Go fuck yourself, essentially. And that these type of companies could do the same thing with psychedelics in a way that perhaps in a certain state or even federally, that a chemical, say psilocybin, could remain illegal, but there could be a specific patented drug made around it that is then legalized. That is, this is the only way you can do psilocybin in this country is via the pharmaceutical system. Yeah, that's the best example of that is Compass Pathway. They're in phase 2B for psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. And they filed all sorts of different patents. And one of the fundamental questions that I propose whenever we're talking about this city and state legalization is what this world looks like. I'm assuming that Compass Pathway will probably get psilocybin FDA approved and commercialized through the FDA, probably by the end of 2024, potentially. And what does that mean for states that are legalizing psilocybin right now, such as Oregon? So if you're a, a service center that gets licensed in Oregon and you're administering psilocybin, albeit federally illegally, and then Compass Pathway wants to open up a clinic right next to it. And Compass Pathway is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on proving out the research and getting FDA approval. How is Compass Pathway going to react knowing that a service center is opened up right next to one of their clinics that are administering FDA approved psilocybin? But now people have the option to go to a service center that's operating illegally from a federal perspective. I, I imagine Compass Pathway is going to spend a lot of lobbying dollars uh, and potentially file various different types of lawsuits 
to enjoin those service centers from operating illegally right next to them. So I'm not quite sure how that, that plays out in the future. Obviously, we have several years before that happens, but I think it's important that as these initiatives roll out at a state level, they also don't do it blindly with what's happening at an FDA level. Yeah, and I think we don't really have a perfect analogy in cannabis just because nobody, it didn't really go this route. Like they weren't other than say a PDLX or something. Nobody's like really pushing on the FDA side. But I think at the state level, we saw things like this. If you remember back in Ohio several years ago when they tried uh, to legalize by uh, ballot measure and the ballot measure was essentially just going to hand over the entire cannabis industry to essentially a handful of companies that were then going to control all production and everything like that. And so we are seeing this in a different light in psychedelics that all of these big pharma companies could be really empowered by the federal government to come in and say, okay, now this is legal and you have to do it this way. And they could, they could go with a scorched earth approach like you're talking about. They could obviously also approach clinics that are already operating and say, hey, you've got a good business model. You've got a customer base already. Why don't you become an exclusive local provider of our Compass Pathways or whomever psychedelic products? But that's, like you said, there's it's really a really hard thing to predict in terms of where that's going to go and how it's going to evolve. And I think it's really going to give us a lot of clues as to how altruistic uh, the psychedelic industry is, especially on the pharma side. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You never know how that plays out. And you're absolutely right. Compass Pathway could go into those service centers and say, hey, you've been successfully administering psilocybin. Why don't you switch over and, and do this legally from a federal perspective? And what a lot of people don't understand is some people would say, it's funny because a lot of people I've talked to, they say, we want more access and we want to make it affordable. So we want state and city legalization. But but actually, assuming Compass Pathway is successful and, and we're able to get the insurance companies on board to cover this therapy, which is a whole separate issue that I, I think there needs to be more lobbying yeah. dollars spent on, on doing that. But assuming insurance companies are covering it, that's what's going to really make this affordable. At the end of the day, these service centers in Oregon and whatever other states potentially roll out that type of model, they will be charging money, right? They're, they're a for-profit business. And right now, ketamine infusions cost generally from six, $600 to $1,000 per session which the normal individual just can't afford. And so the alternative of having a, a drug that's approved through FDA clinical trials that's covered by insurance, that actually could potentially provide more access to marginalized communities and, and those that can't afford to pay $600 per treatment. I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but hopefully it's, it's not a, a scorched earth approach and potentially the, the industries from a state perspective and then an FDA perspective could potentially merge and service the, the entire planet in, in a productive manner. Mm, totally agree. So tell me what company or companies in the psychedelics industry are you most excited about? Yeah, there's a lot of exciting companies that are popping up. Obviously, we're in the, the very early innings of this industry. Right now, we're, we're like I mentioned, I'm mainly focused in the biotech pharmaceutical side. Um, we've invested in companies like Wisana. They're a company that is researching psilocybin for traumatic brain injury. That's their, their main focus. Their CEO is 
Daniel Carcillo, who's an ex-NHL hockey player, and he's become the poster child for, for athletes and veterans who are, are medicating with psychedelic compounds to treat their traumatic brain injury. And, and they're doing some very exciting things around that. Another company I'm excited about is Awaken. They're out of the UK. They're researching MDMA for various substance use disorders, um, such as alcoholism. They just announced just yesterday, actually, clinical trials around ketamine for gambling addiction. So they're really mainly focused on the addiction side of things and, and how psychedelic compounds could help with that. Um, but then we have another company actually right here in, in Tampa. I'm out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So it's exciting when we have companies that are local, but we have a company in Tampa, Florida, Solera, who they're researching various new chemical entities, NCEs that are psychedelic inspired for various mental and behavioral health indications. And they also have a provisional patent on a transdermal DMT patch that they're further developing. So lots of exciting companies doing a lot of, of different things. But yeah, there's a long list um, of companies that we're excited about. And, and we're pretty much every day, I'm on the phone with different companies that are pitching us on different opportunities in the space. So we're excited, but we're also very analytical. There's also a lot of not so good business plans. There, it, it's not simple to roll out a business in this industry. Not only do you have the complexities of these compounds being so powerful, but you also have the regulatory complexity. So if you don't have the right strategy and business plan, you're pretty much walking into a wall and, and a path to nowhere. Very important to be very analytical from the regulatory side, from the patent side, from the FDA regulatory pathway side, but also the team and the vision on, on what they're, they're looking to achieve. Mm, awesome. That's a great list. And as a TBI survivor, I, myself, I definitely can't say enough for the power of psychedelics to, you know, help reset a lot of things and, and heal a lot of that trauma. So thank you for that. Absolutely. So I'd love to know how can people get involved in the psychedelics industry? What would be your best practices to get started? It really depends on, on their interests. If they're just looking to get involved from an advocacy perspective, my, my nonprofit works in the advocacy space. It's mrpsychedeliclaw.com and we have a get involved tab. So they're welcome to visit our website and you know click on get involved, fill out the form and We'll get you as involved as we could get you. But there's also various other nonprofits. My nonprofit is doing some work. There's tremendous work being done by a lot of different groups, such as like Heroic Hearts, that they're basically helping veterans get treatment mm. for these various indications. They, they basically take them outside the country to, to go to some of these retreats. Silo Wellness is a for-profit entity doing something similar where they have retreats. So it really depends if, if you're looking at the on the investment side, they basically need to figure out number one, what type, where do they want to invest in the industry, whether it's where along the value chain, and there's so many different companies starting, but then they also have to figure out what's the best vehicle to invest. Do they want to make direct investments into companies? Do they want to invest in an ETF like Psy, PSY? or do they want to invest in venture capital? So there's various options if you're coming at it from an investor perspective. And then if you're looking to start your own business, obviously there's various things you need to, to understand and take into consideration 
as far as where you want to operate. I get a, a ton of calls from people that want to open up, basically start mush like chocolate mushroom brand, psilocybin infused chocolates, and they want to build out their brand. And, and I explained to them that in my opinion, that's really not where the opportunity lies. I don't, even in Oregon, it's not really being rolled out as like a consumer brand type of product. Maybe in the future, there might be opportunities there. There's certainly opportunities if they wanted to launch a brand around like functional mushrooms, which are essentially non-psychoactive legal mushroom extracts, which right now from a health and wellness perspective, the functional mushroom space is expanding tremendously. So certainly if they wanted to build out a consumer brand, they could do so in the functional mushroom space. And, and then once it potentially becomes legalized, as far as psilocybin goes, potentially that brand recognition they've built on the functional mushroom side, they could convert over into doing it more so on the, the psilocybin side. So there's a lot of different areas people could get involved. It really just depends on, on where their interest lies. Thanks. That was a great overview. So tell me, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if you'd call it a, a, a failure. And, and some might think it's silly. But one thing, a story I've just recently started openly discussing that kind of haunted me my whole life was I've always been a straight A student my whole life. And my, my first year of law school in one of my classes that I thought that I had this class nailed down, I thought I was going to ace the exam. I ended up getting <laughs> a C plus in that class. And, and I had never even really hadn't gotten B's and it was my first C plus and I was just shocked. My, otherwise I had A's in my other classes, but your first semester of law school is such a key year. And, and that's really where you get an internship for, for your 1L to 2L year. And so this C plus haunted me and I went absolutely crazy in law school, trying to make up for that C plus to push my GPA up. And at the time, what's interesting is it, it seemed like the worst, worst thing in, in that moment, it seemed like it was the worst thing that could have happened to me. And, but really what it did is it motivated me to never leave it up to chance and to be extremely prepared for all my exams. I ended up getting all A's in law school after that and ended up basically finishing at the very top of my class and was able to get one of the top positions out of law school working for Holland and Knights. I think one thing that I, I talk to a lot of people, and I, I mentor and coach some people as well on the side. And one thing I, I tell people is there's really, in my opinion, like everything happens for a reason. There's good things that happen. There's really not bad things that happen. All bad things that happen, it really is just how you look at them and, and how you approach them. And that C plus I, I now look at reflecting back on it is actually being a blessing and it further motivated me to work harder and never allow that to happen again. So I guess that would be, if you could call that a failure, that, that was kind of, and, and so me and my, me and I actually have my own coach as well. And, and I think if people dig hard enough into their past, I think we all have that C plus. I think we all have that, that event that may have happened in our life where at the moment it seemed absolutely horrible, but upon reflection, it actually was a blessing and and actually made you you know work harder or gain further per perspective on life and what you want to achieve so that's my, my, my i call it my c plus and, and i'm sure everyone if they think hard enough has their own c plus oh definitely 
Very relatable. <laughs> so what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? My law school books definitely have influenced my, my life quite a bit, but there's really, I wouldn't say there's any books that necessarily stand out tremendously. I read nonfiction. I'm very into like self-help and business books and really self-learning types of books. One, one, one book that I thought was really great was Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. It, it basically talks about how people really, there's outliers in society. And, but there's, if you look back at, at the circumstances, they're very easily explained. So it highlights some of the people that have been uber successful, like the Bill Gates of the world, and identifies that while they're total outliers from a financial perspective, they're not all that different from others. And it's really the time period in which they were born. It was this perfect time period for someone like Bill Gates for the way his mind worked. It was the perfect time period for him to basically execute. Now, now obviously there were circumstances that Bill Gates had, and he was able to essentially capitalize on that opportunity. And there's something to be said for that, but it's also easily explainable. So that's a book that I think just helped me gain a lot of different perspective. It also talks a lot about like children who are really good at sports early on. They end up playing in all-star leagues, summer leagues, and they end up basically getting even better at sports. So if you're in kindergarten and you're one of the older kids in your grade, basically you have a, a real edge. Being eight months older when you're in kindergarten is actually quite significant. And generally those children will be better at sports. And because they're better, they'll put more time into it and they'll full further excel up to the point when they're 15, 16, 17. And now they're just more developed and much better at those particular sports. So I would say Outliers is a good book, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of a lot of different nonfiction, self-help type books. Oh, very cool. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate that is about to enter the real world? And is there any advice you think they should? I'm a big believer in manifesting your own future. I really think that if you believe in yourself and you tell yourself the right stories in your mind, you could really achieve anything. I guess just generalized advice for them is to really, in their mind, envision what they want the future to look like and then go out, set out to execute and create that future. If you can't imagine something, then you can't achieve something. So I think it's important for people to, to figure out what direction. Now, that doesn't mean coming out of high school, you need to know exactly what you want your career to be. I certainly didn't. I remember my freshman, sophomore year of college, I'm like having to pick a major and I'm like, I don't even know what major I want to have. But I, I always envisioned what I, I wanted my future to look like from a more broad perspective. And then as I got older, I've honed this skill even further where I'm constantly imagining where I will be one year from now, three years from now, five years from now. And if, if you imagine it and then you go out and execute every single day, you can create that future. So that would probably be my, my broad advice for really anyone, whether they're coming out of high school or changing jobs or 40 years old, 50 years old, I truly believe in, in manifesting your own future. Mm, powerful. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, 
What would it say and why? Another thing I live by, I, I'm, I'm not a big religious guy, but I am pretty spiritual. And if I were to create my own kind of religion, I would say it would be broken down very simply. It would do good and good will come to you. I, I believe if you put good out into the planet, good things will come back to you. So I guess that's what my billboard would say do good and good will come back to you. I think it's a very, if you look at religions across the world and a lot of religions, that's really the 10 commandments, all these things. That's really what it boils down to. Just, we all, we get approached with different decisions to make every day. And if you really think about most of those decisions, what the right decision is, like the right thing to do. It's these other external forces that sometimes might pull you to do not necessarily what's the most right and most ethical thing, so I think it's important to always just ask yourself, you know, what's the right thing to do? And if you do the right thing, I believe that the the world will reward you in various different ways. So do good and good will come to you would be my billboard. Love it. Dustin, this has been a really fun and fascinating conversation, but it does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Man, these are good questions. The kindest thing anyone has ever done for me. Man, I, I think you might have stumped me on this one. Certainly, my parents giving birth to me is, I guess, I would put up there. I think oftentimes people, you have these issues with your parents, and sometimes things get even more complicated as you get older. Sometimes they become more simple. I know when I was younger, I had my issues with my parents. And as I got older and I became more mature, I started to understand that my parents are just human beings and, and they were going through some challenges themselves when I was growing up. And I've lived, I, I've learned to forgive and forget. And, and I think forgiveness is one of the biggest blessings anyone could give themselves, relieving them, themselves of carrying the weight of resentment or whatever it might be. So I would say the best gift I've been given is from my parents. And that gift would be the life that they gave me. Oh, it's a beautiful answer. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dustin. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. Great questions and, and happy to be on again uh, anytime you want me. Oh, absolutely. So today's episode was brought to you by the HOCL Association. If you're an HOCL business owner or looking to join the industry, visit hocla.org to learn more and book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast, or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yes.